Let's pray. Father, we have really one theme that we can boast of that is worth boasting of, and that is we have, that we have Christ. But even in that, we cannot boast of having Christ as if having him is something that we've merited or done or accomplished. We boast in the fact that we have Christ because he's our treasure, because we love him, because we enjoy him, because we are so glad that we are blessed and privileged to have Christ, but we don't boast in a way that we have Christ because of something that we have done or that we have obtained him or attained something, you know, a certain level of spirituality by which then we deserve him. Lord, we have Christ simply because by your grace, by your favor, you have chosen to give him to us, and you have chosen to give us to him. And so we're thankful, Lord. We're thankful that by the Spirit of God you have written your law upon our hearts. We're thankful that you, by your Spirit, have sealed us, that the believer in every station of life has this incredible place of solace and rest and peace because we know that we are yours and nobody can snatch us out of your hand. We thank you, Father, for that and we worship you because of that. And so we pray today, Lord, as, that your, as your word goes out, that it would go out in truth, that it would go out with clarity, go out with conviction by a, a demonstration of in the power of the Spirit so that you're glorified, so that you're lifted up, and so that these spiritual truths and realities that you have given to us in the Word may be clearly imprinted upon our hearts um, so that we might believe them and know them and live them out and enjoy you because of them. So we thank you, Lord, for today, for this time together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, Romans chapter 2, 14, 15, 16 is where we will be this morning. Um, I have to tell you that these three verses have been like a puzzle for me over the past like five to six weeks. I don't know if we have any puzzle people here in the room. Like I used to enjoy doing puzzles. Now I'm at, I don't know, maybe I'll return back to a stage in life where I enjoy doing them, but right now the puzzles that I enjoy to do are like the big toddler-sized floor puzzles where there's 10 pieces and they're all like this big. Those are the puzzles I'm into right now. Um, so this passage has been a puzzle for me in putting the pieces together. I think that these three verses for me in particular are the three hardest verses in all the book of Romans to preach through. Um, and so I'm praying for the Lord's help. Um, I have gone back and forth on one particular phrase in this passage for the past five to six weeks going into it. I had one, and I had always held like this particular view on it for years. And then I, like six weeks ago, I switched my view. And then a week after that, I switched back. And then a week after that, I switched back. 
And then a week I switched back again, and now I've done a third switch back. And so the, for the past couple weeks, I've been kind of where I am today and what I'm going to, to share regarding um, Romans 2, 14 and 16 this morning. I was encouraged, though. <clears throat> About two weeks ago, I heard a sermon. The guy preaching said, I have held a particular view on this passage that I am preaching on for 30 years. And I now hold a different view, and this is the first sermon that I'm preaching on this passage um, that since I've changed my view on it. And I thought to myself, man, this is refreshing. This is good news because we should always be, we should always be growing. It's okay to, as you grow and mature in the Lord, to um, change your views as long as they're like for the good, right? Um, but to be open and coming to the scripture and saying, God, you're, you are the author. You are the teacher. I am the student. I'm here to learn. Speak to me through your word. And I think if we approach God's word like that, um, then we're in a good place and we're open to be taught and um, perhaps have our minds changed when it comes to certain even issues and convictions that we've had for many years. Um, as we get into Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, 14 through 16, just again, kind of remind us of a big picture issue, what it is that Paul is addressing. He's combating a workspace righteousness, but he's doing this by highlighting the law and its requirements so that we see the impossibility of doing it, right? He's, he's put out to us the requirements of the law and what God requires of us in order to be saved by works, which would be absolute perfection, and by him doing that, we are then reminded of the fact and revealed of the fact that nobody can be declared righteous by works of the law because nobody can keep it perfectly. So that's why he's, he's emphasized and magnified the law. The requirements of it are impossible. And so it really doesn't matter the form of the law which mankind has. If, you're, if it's what he's been arguing is if you're a Gentile and you have the natural law, you can't keep it perfectly. If you're a Jew and you have the Mosaic law, you can't keep it perfectly. And that salvation cannot be obtained by law keeping. And the point of that is that by seeing that impossible standard, mankind would turn from their own attempts to be justified by the law and then would turn to Christ. And that's where the good news of the gospel really beams forth and shines forward. Like, you cannot do anything to earn favor with God or salvation with God. Try, try, try as hard as you want. You cannot attain perfection. And when you come to that realization and you're undone by it, and then you hear the good news of the gospel, then the gospel becomes the greatest news ever to be heard because you're like, what God requires, he actually provides on my behalf through the perfect work of Christ. And you mean that I can have forgiveness of my sin? I can have reconciliation with God, not by what I do, but by what he has done. And simply by faith in him, I can be saved. Is that what you're telling me? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. That that is what it is we are saying. Salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And the gospel becomes such wonderful good news to us. And so you put that absolute standard of perfection. God upholds that standard. This is what he requires. He doesn't lessen it at all. Not one jot or tittle from the law will be done away with. But then in comes Christ. And he's the one that's kept it perfectly. 
And we are justified by faith and by faith alone in him. And that's the point that he's been pushing forward. Um, he's also, as we'll see very clearly in the next set of verses, he's began working his way towards addressing the Jews specifically. The church in Rome is going to be made up primarily of Gentiles, probably, but there are going to be Jews that are present as well. And he's began working his way towards addressing the Jews specifically, which we'll see in verses 17 through 29. But before he does this, he intends to, in our passage today, provoke them to jealousy. I think he's doing what he says he wants to do in Romans chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. This is going to become a major point of emphasis for Paul, especially as we begin to break into chapter 3. It'll be very, very clear next in the next set of verses, but he's making his way towards addressing the Jews and the idea that they have in their head that they have favor with God and they're right with God simply because they have the Mosaic law. And that they're just naturally engrafted into salvation. Faith is not an issue for them because they are, they have the law of God. And Paul's trying to get them to say, it doesn't matter if you have the law. You, have, you are saved by faith and by faith alone. And part of his goal in Romans is he wants to provoke the Jews to this conclusion. And so he'll say this in Romans eleven thirteen and 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order, that, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And so he's trying to provoke them to abandon their idea that they're saved through the law, that they're only saved by faith in Christ. Nobody, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. By faith and by faith alone is the only way that anybody is saved. And he's trying to provoke them to see that and he's doing that, I believe, in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 16 today. And I think that will become abundantly clear as we continue to make our way through the end of chapter 2 in the book of Romans as well. Um, and so let's go ahead and read. We'll read Romans 2, verses 14. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 12. Romans 12, 2, 12 through 16. And then we want to spend some time just focusing on verses 14, 15, and 16 this morning. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And we talked about that relationship last week. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Today we want to talk about what it is I believe that Paul is teaching here regarding the new nature, and, 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 and really the focal point here is Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. And what is he talking about there? Um, there's really two perspectives on these verses here. Um, 
And this is the puzzle that I've been putting together. In this passage, is Paul referring to unbelieving Gentiles or believing Gentiles? And there's a lot of commentaries on both views. Um, I land, I think it's, it may be obvious by the title of the sermon and the passage that Sam read for us this morning, Jeremiah 31, I land on the position that Paul is addressing believing Gentiles. And I want, I think, well, as we work through the text, I, um, I hope that becomes clear. I see a couple things in particular why he would not be addressing unbelieving Gentiles. Um, firstly, just a, a few, um, if he's talking about the Gentiles having the law written upon their heart, for the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. He's talking about, so if Gentiles who do not have the Mosaic law end up doing what's written in the Mosaic law by nature, even though they don't have the law, but they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, um, how would a Gentile who's never had the Mosaic law be able to do what's written in the Mosaic law, especially from the position that the Mosaic law has now been written upon their hearts? Um, the only exposure that the Gentile has to what the righteous requirements of God are, which are presented in the Mosaic law, would also be what he has presented in the natural law. And in that way, the natural law, what we've read in um, Romans 1, and the Mosaic law, namely just think like the Ten Commandments, they parallel each other. There's a lot of similarities. Both of them reveal um, the righteousness of God. But if Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic law are doing what's in the Mosaic law just because by virtue of being exposed to natural law, but end up perishing because they're unbelievers, What's the point of the argument in that? Because that's where Paul ends in 16. Like, you, we ha we're looking to the idea that there's a day of judgment coming. And so if the Gentiles don't have the Mosaic Law, they're doing what's in the Mosaic Law because it's been revealed to them through what they see about God and the natural law, but at the end of the day, when judgment day comes, they perish, what's the big deal? Secondly, if that's true, if they're unbelieving Gentiles, this in no way, shape, or form is going to provoke the Jew to jealousy of any kind because they don't care. So what if a Gentile doesn't have the Mosaic Law? So what if they're being good moral people because of what's been revealed to God, revealed to them about God as presented in the natural law? At the end of the day, they perish. We don't care. That doesn't provoke the Jew to jealousy at all. And plus, plus Paul has already made the point earlier in chapter 1. There are Gentiles who already do what's in the natural law, but they're not saved by natural law. You can't be saved. You can't be saved by the natural law or the Mosaic law. And so I think for just those few reasons um, is a good reason to think why he's not referring to Gentiles as being unbelievers. But more importantly, I think as we work through the text, we'll see why he does refer to them as being Gentile believers. And it revolves around this idea of them having the new nature. And he begins at verse 14, for when Gentiles... Um, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. In verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written upon their hearts. And one of the passages I think that actually helped me most in this is what Paul would say at the end of chapter 2, verses 26 through 29. Right? So we're looking at the broad context. No one is saved by their obedience to the law, but then there are these Gentiles 
never been exposed to the Mosaic law, but they're doing what's in the Mosaic law by a new nature because the law has been written upon their hearts. And then he's going to go in 17 through 24 to address the unbelieving Jew. There are these Gentiles, right? 14 and 16. There are these Gentiles. They've never had the law, but they're doing it. And you, Jews, who have had the law, you're not doing it. You're hypocritical. And then he ends chapter 2 on the note of this. So if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, a clear reference to Jeremiah 31. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so as I'm looking at this whole thing, I'm seeing from chapter 1, he's, he's laying out this worldwide indictment that everybody is under sin, Jew, Gentile, you have the natural law, you have the Mosaic law, doesn't matter, you can't do it, God's requirement is perfection, that's where the gospel becomes good news. And then he begins to address the Gentiles in particular. Gentiles, they have never had the law, but they're doing what's in the Mosaic law. Jew, the, the Jews in the church, how do you give an account for that? How do you give an account for the fact that the Gentiles have never been exposed to the law that you had, and yet they're doing it? And then, but in 17 through 24, and you've had the law, and you're not doing it. And then in 25 through 29, why? Because they are the ones who have truly been circumcised, not you. Because circumcision, true circumcision, is circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. And that circumcision comes about by the Spirit of God. So when Gentiles who do not, do not have the Mosaic Law, they are doing it. How are they doing it? Because the Spirit of God that wrote the Mosaic Law is the Spirit of God that wrote that law upon their heart and circumcised their heart. And now they have become changed to a, such a degree that they have a new nature, and they're doing it. Their life is consistent with what it is that the law requires. You had the law, and it's inconsistent. And so it goes into reminding us of this truth, this, this big picture biblical truth of what we learned in Sunday school today, that a changed heart leads to a changed life. The reason why they're able to do what's in the law, even though they've never had the law, is because their hearts have been circumcised and changed, and they now have a new nature. That's the only way that they can function out of this nature to do that which they've never even been exposed to. But God is the one being the author of it, um, puts it upon their heart to do these things. So Gentiles, they don't have the law, but they're doing what is in the law by nature. What's the only way that a Gentile can do what's in the Mosaic law with any eternal meaning by nature? The fact that they now have a new nature. Paul would use this same word in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, indicating that one's identity and the, thing, and the way that they live go together. Essentially, your nature, who you are in the eyes of God, 
is what determines the things that you do and the way that you live your life. He would put it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2, 1, 2, and 3. I'm just going to read 1 and 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? So as an unbeliever, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Um, I'll go ahead and read all three verses. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Their nature, being dead in trespasses and sins, were the reason why they lived a sinful lifestyle. So he used it in Ephesians 2 in the negative sense of saying, you were by nature dead in your trespasses and sins. That's why you did things that you did. Your sinful life. Are you a sinner because you sin? Or are you, do you sin because you're a sinner? And it's your sinful nature. That's the reason why you sin. It's, just, it's by your nature. That's what comes out of you. And Paul would use it, though, in, a, in Romans 2, in a positive way. How do they by nature do what's written in the law? Well, their nature has changed. They are no longer dead in their trespasses and sins. They have now have the law of God written upon their hearts. Their identity has changed. Therefore, their living, their lifestyle has changed. And so then I want to notice, I want us to look at specifically four things that um, I see in the passage regarding the new nature and, and the effects that it, this new nature brings about. And the first is this. The new nature makes you a doer of the law. You see how many times in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, David, Psalm 119. How long were we in Psalm 119 together on Wednesday nights? Like six months, longer than that maybe? One of the things that you, we saw over and over again is that what does David love? He loves the law of God. How can he love something that constantly reveals God's righteous requirement and reminds him that he doesn't need it? Because it drives him closer to the Redeemer. It makes him embrace and love the Savior more. Because he sees what it is that the Redeemer has done for him. And so he, then he wants to do the law. I mean, look at what he says. Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. Essentially, he's saying, for when Gentiles do not have the law by nature do because they are justified, the law requires they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. It's the, he says in verse 13, it's the doers of the law who will be justified. Verse 14, the Gentiles who are doing the law. And so um, what your new nature, converted nature, does is it makes you a doer of the law in two ways. Number one, it makes you a doer of the law in the sense that by virtue of being in Christ, his perfect obedience to the law is accredited on your account. Because you are in Christ, you are a doer of the law. You have fulfilled the law perfectly, completely, and righteously because Christ has done it and he gives you all the credit for it. That in a very theological sense in which God views you, he views you because of the work of the Son as one who has fulfilled the law perfectly and completely. And, but if you are at all aware of, your, of who you are, if you have any level of self-awareness, you know, I don't do that. 
And again, that's what's so good about the gospel. You're like, that's not me. But God looks at me like that. What an incredible gift. But then practically, I become a doer of the law in that I look at the law, I look at God's righteous standard. I know I can't meet it. But it gives me a framework from which I, can, I now should be living my life and what I should be pursuing. I look at the law and I go, God, give me the strength, give me encouragement, give me the sight to want to live in a way that's consistent with your law. I want to do that. I want to do that stuff. I don't want to be, I don't want to grumble. I don't want to complain. I don't want to be selfish. I, I don't want to murder. I don't want to steal. I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to covet. I don't want to do any of those things. Like, if you're a believer, you should be saying, amen. I don't want to do those things either. There's nothing inconsistent with the new nature and what God gives us in the law and a desire to do those things. Because it would glorify him and it actually makes life, like, good and enjoyable for us. I guarantee you, if you don't murder somebody, life will be more enjoyable for you than if you did. If you don't take other people's stuff without asking, life is better than if you had stolen it. And the believer wants to live a, a way that's consistent with the law. My new nature changed, makes me a doer of the law in a theological, spiritual sense in the eyes of God, but also in a very practical sense. And then I, may, and then I myself, um, I am then a law to myself, or Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. As a Gentile, Gentiles become, or we are a law to Gentiles, a testimony of God's righteous requirements and the need for Christ. I continue to uphold as a believer, I'm a law to myself, I'm a law to others uh, who don't know Christ, as, the, as, as in I present and I testify through the righteous requirements of God and the work of Christ provided in him. Secondly, my new nature shows that the law is written on my heart. And this was the Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 language. I mean, you just look at verse 33 in particular. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law with them and them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant which is in Christ for the Christian, which Jeremiah 31 speaks of, is written on the heart and declares us to be people whose sins are remembered no more. I have this law written upon my heart that I am adopted by him, that I belong to him, that I'm in this new covenant relationship with him by virtue of his work upon the cross. That's why at communion time, we focus upon the new covenant that we are in by virtue of his work, his death, burial, and resurrection, life lived, as we remember his body and we, as we partake of the elements together. 
I partake of that communion time. I'm a partaker of the new covenant because of the work that he's done upon my heart, circumcising it, writing his law upon my heart, and I've been given then a new nature because of it. The new nature shows that the law is written upon my heart. I become a forgiven, God-adopted proclaimer of God's righteous standard and requirement fulfilled in Christ. I have been changed by Christ to share Christ. The law of God's written upon my heart and it makes me want to share Christ with others. I mean, this is a mark of someone who has a new nature. And as scary and nervous those those opportunities are as they come to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ, the new nature should compel us to do so because he's written his word, his law upon my heart. And I now have a new nature. I want to do that which is pleasing to him. So the question is, is that do we? Are we motivated? When was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ? Right? God is light, and he sends, and we're called to be his light in the world amidst this crooked and twisted generation, as Paul would say in Philippians. Do we, do we show the light of Christ? Thirdly, the new nature defends us in doubt. Again, I mentioned this last week. Paul has established the courtroom scene. Sin, law, righteousness, justified in verses 12 and 13 are all speaking of these legal terms. But he does this in verse 15 as well. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse. Their conflicting thoughts either prosecute or defend them. And our new nature defends us when we're in doubt. If, if he's talking about unbelieving Gentiles, there are no defending thoughts. There are only prosecuting thoughts. It's only by virtue of being a believer that you have any thoughts defending you on the day of judgment, which is again where he's getting in verse 16, at all. If, if in verse 16 he's saying, right, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when according to my, God, my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. If he has pictured on his, in his mind judgment day that your thoughts are either going to prosecute you or defend you, if you're not a believer, you have no defending thoughts. Only prosecution. You're guilty. I mean, what is the point, right? In a courtroom scene, the sin is the crime. The law is a standard. Righteousness is your innocence. Justification is being declared not guilty. Verse 15, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience also bears witness. Their conscience is testifying, right? There's a, there's, there's a testimony being given in this court, and it's your conscience testifying amidst your conflicting thoughts, some being prosecuting and some being defending. As you stand there, your conscience, your new, because of your new nature, your conscience and the life that you are living now according to your new nature is being put on trial. 
And what's the job of the prosecution? Push, right, hopefully, in, in good justice, pushing for guilt. What's the, the, the point of the defense? We're defending, we're proving innocence. Well, as we stand there on that judgment day, and my, my conflicting thoughts are accusing or even excusing me, I know that because of my new nature, ultimately, the defense wins. And this becomes incredibly helpful not only on that day when my life is brought before the judge and I know God's righteous standard is perfection and I, and, and my, and I have thoughts that are prosecuting me. Dude, you're guilty. And I feel the weight of that and I know that that's true. But then I have these defending thoughts because I see the son mediating and interceding on my, my behalf, saying he's innocent because I bought him, he's mine. Then these defending thoughts rush in like a torrential downpour, and they alleviate all the thoughts of prosecution that are exposing my guilt because of the one defending me. And his defense is good. And it's permanent. And not only is it good on judgment day, but it's good for you and I every day. If you at all, I mean, again, like if you're a believer, you struggle. You're like, you're reading this about conflicting thoughts and you're like, that's like every day of my life. I have these conflicting thoughts. I feel condemned. I feel like I'm under God's judgment and wrath. Am I even a Christian? And then another, you, but then you have defending thoughts too. Yes, I am because I believe in what Christ has done. I'm not going to allow my feelings to dictate the way that I live. All that stuff we talk about. Like that's good for us today. I think about um, Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther, what we know probably best about him was his 95 thesis nailed to the church door, Wittenberg, and... But, you know, he was really a tender and wonderful shepherd and pastor of his church as well. Um, Martin Luther, I read this a while ago, and I was reminded of it as I was preparing for this sermon. Uh, to read Luther is to come to know a person who saw his soul and the souls of others at times in despair. His pastoral care for his own soul and of others, therefore, focused upon spiritual doubts about acceptance by God, spiritual depression because of feelings of rejection by God, spiritual despair over ever-pleasing God, all caused by a sense of an alienation from God. Luther, in his, in his pastoral ministry, and this was largely brought about by the way that he looked at God prior to his conversion, he just, like, he tried, 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 strove, strove to be right with God and to have peace with God by his own works. And he found that it was just impossible. It drove him crazy. And then he, then he comes to know Christ. And he's like, but that same, those same feelings of accusation, the same feelings of guilt at times remain and live and linger within the lives of believers. And for him, the worst thing that could happen for the believers is that they would doubt the love of Christ for them. 
And so he made it his goal to, to pursue this in the lives of those whom he pastored. And his, and his tool that he used for, for dispelling doubt, addressing spiritual depression, uh, weakness, and things like that was the gospel. He would say the gospel is sufficient for comfort and suffering, for victory over sin, and for alleviating spiritual doubts. The ministry to troubled souls is a ministry of the gospel. When those conflicting thoughts come in, not just on judgment day, but today or tomorrow, some prosecuting, some accusing, some excusing, or some defending them, we can rest secure because of what it is that we know in the gospel by virtue of our position in Christ to know that he defends us and that we are his. And we can rest securely in that. And then from resting securely in our position in Christ, our identity in Christ, this new nature, which by the way, like he did anyways, the only reason we have a new nature is because he chose to give us a new nature. And guess what? He intends for us to know that we have that nature, enjoy that nature, live out that nature, worship him in that nature, glorify him in that nature, rest secure in him in that nature. And to know that our captain defends us. Every day when the fiery darts from the enemy are coming and they're assailing you and you wake up. And it's just sometimes, sometimes you just wake up and it just, it's just one of those days. And you're like, I feel terrible. Like, it, it, is, is, does God really love me? Will he really carry me through? Does he really see? Does he really know? Is he really at work? Man, two Saturdays ago, we were talking about God's providence. I was all hyped about it. Now I'm like, is that even true? You know, we go through these things. The gospel gives us a sure place to go. To know for sure that our identity is fixed in him and based upon his work. Not upon how you feel. Not about how good you're doing that day. Of course, we want to strive. But let's face it, some days... Striving is not in the cards for us, it seems like. Failure after failure. What do you do in those days? You turn back to Christ. You know that he defends you. He puts all that to rest. But then lastly, the new nature will be proven on judgment day. Again, the only way that we see in verse 16, the conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, by Christ Jesus. The only reason why that we have a defense that day is because we are, we are Christians and we are in Christ. The unbelieving Gentile has no, the, not just the unbelieving Gentile, just the unbeliever has no defense in that day. But I did find it interesting. You read in chapter two, verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. So judgment day seems to be a judgment based upon works. But then in verse 16, he clearly says that judgment day is according to the gospel. So how can judgment day be according to works and be according to the gospel at the same time? Aren't those two things opposed to one another? And it depends on, they certainly are in many points. But when you look at both the gospel and the law, both reveal God's righteous standard. 
what the law can't deliver and it condemns, whereas the gospel provides what the law demands. The reason why Judgment Day is a judgment day based upon the law and the gospel is because the law and the gospel both reveal the righteous requirements of God and his standard. But if I am only under the law, condemnation is what I can expect. The law cannot deliver me. We'll get into that as we move through Romans. What the function of the law is to increase the trespass, to, to identify and to expose sin for what it is. So it reveals the righteous requirements of God, and so does the gospel. But the gospel provides what the law demands, perfection. And so that's how Paul is able to bring both of these truths to bear to be the case on Judgment Day. On that day, we will be judged based upon whether or not we have met the righteous requirements of God or we have a substitute who has. Law and the gospel, both present. My new nature assures me that on that day of judgment, I have a not guilty verdict on my account because of what Christ has done for me. Now, all of this, of course, would have been infuriating to the Jews. Um, if that made them mad, then we'll just wait and see what he says about them in the next set of verses in 17 through 24. But I want to, as we're working through this, and I want us to consider a few things for us today as we prepare to take communion here in just a moment. Thinking about the problem that the Jews have in them resting upon their receiving of the law of God, his truth, and the knowledge of it, and thinking that that is what saves them. And what we're reminded of is the fact that no, there is no amount of biblical knowledge of God's truth that is going to save you. You can know the Bible front and back. You can have it memorized. But there's no amount of knowledge that is going to save you. What saves is a relationship with Christ. Justified by faith in him and his work alone. Not based upon anything that you know or do. You can't stand before him and say, but I, I memorized the whole Bible. I knew it all. And expect a positive verdict. Think about what it is that your salvation is really resting and hinging upon. And whether it's solely upon the work of Christ, or if you think by you being a good person and knowing some things, if you were at church all the time, that that's what's going to save you. You are going to be disappointed in that day. If you do know him, to treasure him, enjoy him. If you were here last Wednesday night, I spoke about the importance of enjoying him. If you know him, shield yourself from doubt and worry with him. When you're feeling, when you're doubting, you're worried, you run to him, and you shield yourself 
from the accusing thoughts and feelings with him as he stands in your place. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Feed your soul on this truth of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he continues to do for his people. Every moment of every day, there's, you know, there's not, there's not, like he doesn't clock out. He doesn't take his 15 or his lunch break from defending you and, and sheltering you and hiding you within his grace. Amen. Like, you have to think about that and force yourself to meditate upon those truths. Tell others of him, that they might come to know him as well, and prepare for his return. As we prepare to take communion together, we're mindful of what it is that Christ has done for us. This is a time of worship for us where we are, 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 we do this every week specifically for this reason, as a time for us to specifically look upon what it is, who Christ is, what he's done, the shedding of his, his blood, the offering up of his body on our behalf, and how that satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. And we rest in that, we rejoice in that, and then we seek to pursue him and work hard out of that as well. So if you're a visitor here today and you know Christ by faith, by faith alone, we do invite for you to partake of the, the elements with us today. If you don't know him by faith, then just let the elements stay, but to consider and to think about what you've heard today and what Christ has done and the gospel called, the only way to be right and reconciled with him is through the work of Christ. And it's not by a mental ascent of just saying, oh yeah, I believe those things to be true. It's about a converted and changed heart that he does. And you, and you plead with him and you cry out to him that he would do that in your life. And he will not turn away any that come to him by faith. And for those of us who know him. This isn't just a time of worship for us, to rejoice, to rest, but to also confess and to look to him and ask for his help for us to continue to grow in the way that we should grow and glorify him with our lives. So the elements are on the tables and behind you. You can get those or turn back to your seat. We'll have some time of prayer for you to think about, meditate on these things, and then we'll partake of communion together shortly.